Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Jeremy, Dave, Luke, and myself are busy compiling material for some excellent future episodes that you will not want to miss. In the meantime, here is another RD Extra debate. The contention is, does the Christian God exist? The debate is between Jared Orm and myself, Justin Schieber. Jared Orm is the host of Conversion Points Radio, a radio show on Glory 1330 in North Georgia. Uh, Their website you can find at conversionpoints.org. Reading from his website... From science to philosophy, from atheism to other religions, from experiencing angels to pastors' personal conversions, we explore how God has interacted with history from the beginning until this very hour. Jared has also been a a Christian guest on the Faith and Skepticism podcast, debating various topics surrounding, you guessed it, faith and skepticism. This debate was not live, rather it was scripted and recorded on our own time, and edited together for a final product. Uh, I very much hope you enjoyed this debate, and we will be back soon with more episodes of Reasonable Doubts. I want to thank Justin for this debate, because I think it's going to be a good debate. Most debates get bogged down by the debate tactics, the rhetoric, the mudslinging that takes place, and I don't think this is going to be the case here. The format and everything, the way it's set up, really allows for the arguments to be delved into. And that's, of course, my desire, is that the evidence and the arguments for the Christian God would be taken into perspective. And being able to do that, I think it's going to offer a lot of power to this debate. And uh, hopefully it'll be a good one for the listeners as well. Now, I am going to take the positive on this argument, the positive case, and that is that the Christian God does exist. And I'm going to argue from three basic contentions that are pretty well known. I don't think any of them are outside of the realm of of unknown to most anybody that's been discussing this for more than six months. These are not new arguments, and in fact, they're pretty much undefeated. Uh, If you go to our website, if if you don't see the link uh, somewhere in the general area of this audio debate, you can go to our website and go to conversionpoints.org and uh, click on Articles and go to three undefeated arguments for the existence of God, and you can follow along with what I'm talking about here, and you'll see the argumentation that I'm putting forward, and you can follow it along in written format. Now, the first argument is the contingency argument, and the second one is the teleological argument from fine-tuning, and the third one is the experiential argument, or the evidence of interaction. So starting with the contingency argument, these all build a cumulative case. Ne- no, not any one specific one is uh, total- in its totality a certainty that go- the Christian God exists, but all three of them together make it very certain that the Christian God exists. So uh, even if one single point here was you know, possibly detracted from, in your mind, by Jacob's response or any other response you find on the Internet, I encourage a, a very in-depth look at this, especially with the contingency argument. Most don't realize this when they encounter the contingency argument. It's actually uh, a philosophical argument with philosophical terms and definitions and in a, a syllogistic premise conclusion format. So it's really a difficult thing for most people who haven't 
ever delved into philosophy. And even people who have delved into philosophy and have had maybe philosophy 101 or a basic course in in college would not be able to understand some of these definitions that are being used. The argument goes back all the way to Aristotle's day and the idea between the universe that is eternal and unchanging to the universe that is changing from static static nature. So the first premise talks about everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or an external cause. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Either something's caused or something's not caused. It's self-existent. Those are only, only the two top possible explanations for something's existence. The premise two states that if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. So this one here is usually a layperson will come back and say, well, this is an assumption or a presupposition or or something of that nature. And it's, it's assuming nothing. It's not presupposing anything. This is like, as I said, a, a philosophical statement. So I'll come back to it as, as we follow along and discuss this argument. But I want to be clear that there is actually a valid logical rationale behind this syllogism. So premise three actually states the universe exists, which is not very controversial, Premise four, the universe has an explanation of its existence. And again, that's not really controversial, controversial either. And then premise five, therefore the explanation of the universe, universe's existence is God. Now, this is, this, this whole syllogism is creating a logical mandate that the, the God, that God exists. Now, it doesn't make create a logical mandate that the Christian God exists, but this one is using a philosophical definition of God that is a primary definition in the sense that it is arguing for a prime mover. So what this, this contingency argument tells us that something outside of the universe, based upon what we know, it's, if we take the, the mainstream scientific understanding of the Big Bang, and even if a person argues that, okay, the Big Bang doesn't look like it's a, it's, a, it's a cause, it just tracks everything back to a singularity, which could have been eternal and static for all of eternity, and then just one day suddenly exploded. Well, contingency argument doesn't really worry about whether that's an eternal universe or even an eternal uh, singularity, that physicality is eternal. It's talking about the fact that there's a primer mover that is external of the universe. So even if there was a singularity, according to the Big Bang, and everything existed in this in infinitely small uh, singularity, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, it exploded. Well, that reason is God. So even if, if that is the case, or if there is a self-existent universe, the first movement is that definition of God. So it's outside of the universe, outside of physicality, it's self-existent, and it's prime. Uh, it's a prime mover. So those are the three things that make the concept of God when we're talking about the philosophical definition here. So if the universe has an explanation of its existence under premise two, and that explanation is God, the reason for that is the idea that it's a logical mandate. Everything that we know about the universe, everything that we know about us, everything logic, rationalism indicates is that something outside of the universe that is self-existent, that was not a physical cause or was an uncaused existence, caused the existence of the universe. 
So this is just a logical concept that is mandated by this argument. It's clear to see that this is by far the only option we are left with, and that's why we call it a logical mandate. The argument logically mandates that there is an, an existent, self-existent external prime mover to the universe. Now, it does not say if, if this is a person or if this is a, a, an arbitrary force. It doesn't actually discuss the interaction. It's just merely asserting that there is a prime mover to the universe. And that's what makes this argument powerful and it's foundational. Now the good news is for the Christian, that's exactly the, the Christian claim. The theological claim is very much that that God possesses those attributes. And that's why it's considered foundational. So the, the second argument is the teleological argument. And this one here is is from fine-tuning, and I'll read the premises here, that premise one is the fine-tuning of the universe was due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. And because it was not physical necessity or chance, it had to be designed. And, I, of course, I'm going to quote the Stanford Philosophy Department when they actually talk about these teleological arguments or these design arguments. And to quote them, they say, that question is, why do design arguments remain so durable if empirical evidence is inferentially ambiguous, the arguments are logically controversial, and the conclusions vociferously disputed? One possibility is that they really are better arguments than most philosophical critics concede. Another possibility is that design intuitions do not rest upon inferences at all. Now, that's quoted directly from the uh, philosophical, Stanford Philosophy Department's uh, uh, Encyclopedia on Philosophy. It's important to understand that despite the people out there saying, oh, no, oh, no, this, and oh, oh, that, oh, this is all oh, so silly, or this has been debunked, these kinds of arguments of, or claims of debunking just really isn't true. These arguments still maintain uh, their, their significance in theology. They still maintain their significance in philosophy. And you have even today a revolution towards thinking, especially with the science that supports these things, that really becomes pretty powerful. In fact, you have Anthony Flew, um, who is a professor, an advocate of atheism for over 60 years. He himself was very convinced by the, the arguments for design that are like this one here. So it's not something that's as, as inept as a lot of people have made out in the past. So the fine-tuning of the universe is the first thing that's typically easily misunderstood. Um, you'll hear things back from the, the, the community of the atheistic community that, uh, you know, well, we couldn't live on Mars. This is this one small planet is, you know, the only thing that is ripe with life, you know, it's, 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 this is the only place we could possibly live of all the places in the universe. So like point zero 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 one percent of the entire universe could we possibly live in that we know about. And this is kind of an argument that's misunderstanding what we mean by fine-tuning. When we say fine-tuning, we're really talking about the idea that the universe is fine-tuned. You'll hear all those big numbers tossed about by the apologists or the scientists. We're talking about that the entire universe is fine-tuned or directed for the human experience. So it's not about life in general or being able to survive or the locations of survival. No, no, no. What it's saying is the fine-tuning of the universe is fine-tuned for the human experiences that, that we have, whether or not evolved or not, we have evolved into this being that has the capacity of sentience, that has the understanding and ability to reason, and it reasons that God exists, and then it happens, just so happens, to experience God. 
And that's a, that's what we're talking about when we say the fine-tuning of the universe was for us. And we're talking about the, the, the human experience in general and everything that that entails, the overall human experience. So that's that's what we understand the fine-tuning to be. And we understand that fine-tuning was either by physical necessity or it came about by chance, you know, just, just happened to happen, or it was designed. And, of course, we can rule out physical necessity and chance. And I'm going to give an analogy here behind the idea of what, 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 how this is described. Imagine that you have a gun and you're in a shooting range and you've got a 360 degree ability to shoot. You put on a blindfold and you start to spin. You extend your arm out and make sure it's rigid. You spin around quite a few times and then you just arbitrarily pick a point in time and pull the trigger. And that the, 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 the trigger is pulled, the physical mechanics of the gun take over, and the, the, uh, the bullet shoots out of the, the muzzle, and it goes somewhere. This, what we're talking about here is the moment you pull that trigger, and then everything else follows after that, is of physical necessity. There is a necessary action that's contingent upon you pulling that trigger. The mechanisms, the chemical reaction, the, the leaving the muzzles flying into the, to the, uh, the actual target or missing the target. That's the idea there that you have. Now, chance is the actual spinning part. Chance in its raw form is just spinning around. But both of those still required the element of the person who had a will that was independent of both physical necessity and independent of chance. And when we talk about design, we're talking about the metaphysical mind that's outside of physical necessity and chance. So what we're talking about there is now take a second person who would take the blindfold off, or he didn't have a blindfold, and he'd point the trigger and pull, pull the trigger and aim it right out at a, at a uh, target. Now, if you didn't know, and he hits the, say he hits the target with the bullseye, dead on. Now, if you didn't know that you, you didn't know about the gun, you didn't know about anything, you just had the bullet, the target, and the locations of which that, that, that arrived right there with the target, you'd assume, well, it could have could have hit anywhere, but it just hit here. Well, that's a presumption of chance. When Everyone that's talking about the telos, the teleological concept there is that, well, we're looking at a target here, a very relevant target, something that just happened to be a bullseye to the concept of fine-tuning. So when we understand chance and physical necessity, physical necessity could not have caused this because if, if everything physical was caused from something non-physical, we understand that there's no physical necessity to be the first cause. So physical necessity on its own doesn't do anything. Whereas also chance by itself, imagine the entire universe was gone. The only thing that existed is chance. Well, chance doesn't work without physicality. Chance only works in, inside of physicality. So prior to the physical physical universe, there, you know, from the, the quantum singularity or whatnot, there is no physical necessity because the item, the quantum singularity was either static or it busted into existence from non-physicality. So physical necessity can't possibly be it. And chance can't govern it without physical necessity. So, of course, chance isn't going to go- govern an eternal, non-changing, st- static singularity. So we're left only with one option, and that's design. So when we see the fact that, that a target's been hit, we see that there's this idea that this is a bullseye shot, that we happen to have sentience, we happen to have the human experience. We look at that, and we look back at the possible causes of physical necessity or chance, and we see that neither one of those are possibly an option. It's logically contradictory to have physical necessity be the thing that, that happens because there was nothing physical prior to the physical, or that the physical sta- static entity or sta- static singularity 
uh, prior to change didn't doesn't do anything. There's no physical reactions. Or and the same fact is that chance doesn't govern without movement. Uh, chance can't possibly operate outside of physicality, nor can chance operate inside of a static uh, uh, singularity. So something caused that prime movement, and it just, something just happened to be so finely tuned to the human experience. So we see two arguments there. That the, the, the contingency argument is absolutely profound. There's a prime movement. Teleological argument looks at that prime movement and says, oh, wow, that prime movement couldn't have been chance and couldn't have been design or a physical necessity had to be a design. And on top of that, it just happened to hit this bullseye fine tuned universe for the human experience. And then of course, the third thing that we come to is the evidence of interaction. Now, a lot of, of detractors from this particular argument find the, the idea of testimonies for Christ or testimonies for different religions to be a problem for religion. And, and what we're really talking about, we're not citing drug addicts, uh, social deviants, and uh, we're not citing frauds and hucksters. We're just, we're talking about people who are theologians, monks, pastors, priests, we're talking about people who have, uh, even lay people who have had an experience with God and a relationship with God. So we're talking quality claimants here, and we're talking about the fact that there's a, quant- there's a, there's a plethora of, of claims behind this. So it's not just myself as a theologian or possibly another theologian, you know, running around saying these things. We're talking the, to the tune of right now, even in America alone, there's almost, what, two, 1.4 million, uh, Church leaderships, if, if you include 700,000 churches in America and you take the leader, leadership from those churches and you kind of weed out some of the ones that may not have experience with God, that you have this um, very quality claim from theologians that God exists. They've looked at the evidence. They've found the evidence to be preponderant. They've looked at the contingency argument. They've looked at the teleological argument. They've seen their own relationship with God. And most of them claim a relationship of some sort with God, whether it be the, what's called the fullness of the relationship or even a partial relationship. They have that. And the, this idea that testimonies are invalid is probably one of the biggest attractions from it that people find to be interesting. They'll cite uh, the idea that, well, there's frauds, and you know, people who, you know, if there's religion, there's fraud. And I can't help but express that rationale isn't really valid because, again, I'm not citing fraudsters, uh, you know, hucksters or, or people that are clearly out to profit off of the gambit, but we're talking about people who are theologians or academics that are supporting this, and we're talking about the sheer quantity of them. And if you were to take scientists, even though there's people who have been fraudulent in science, people who have deliberately, you know, tried to make money off of science, and probably some of them have succeeded, just because we know about the frauds that exist doesn't mean other ones haven't gotten through, but that doesn't invalidate science as a concept. So even if you can cite a few people who were deliberately lying, or they were crazy, or they were deviants of some sort, that doesn't detract from the idea that we do see a clear example in theology that is obviously pointing to the quality of the claimants. So the rationale that somehow frauds or hucksters would detract from that kind of claim is, is very, very problematic. But the the biggest part of this is that this, this claim is actually expected. If the contingency argument is right and the fact that the teleological argument is correct, then it's actually expected that there would be an involved God who deliberately designed and targeted this human experience that he would actually involve himself in the human experience. So we see that there's, a, there's actually a, a prediction 
from those two logical arguments that we would expect to see that kind of claim borne out in humanity. Now, we may not expect there to be an academic field surrounding it, but we definitely expect that there would be some sort of interaction. We see that. We see an interaction on a multiple levels and, and, and multiple multiple phases. Now, there is one other piece that might be someone might turn back and say, you know, hey, the claims of the church, the, the saints, the people who claim to experience God. Well, there's other people too. There's the Muslims. There's the Hindus. What about them? Well, we don't really detract from that. Again, also, it's the same way if I use an analogy of Australia. If you came about in Australia and one person said, hey, there's horrible jungles there, and another person goes, horrible deserts, uh, you know, and the person goes, endless beaches, <laughs> right? There's this idea that just because they're all telling you something different about Australia, when you have an education about Australia, you realize that it's really, it's only an apparent contradiction, but there's actually something more going on. And we find that Christianity has a far more explanatory power and experiential power when we start to really delve into the details of that. So it's very important that we keep that in focus, that just because people apparently are contradicting their, their testimonies look contradictory about Australia, that doesn't invalidate Australia at all. And we understand that education, that, that kind of explanatory power that comes around the education about Australia resolves those to be merely apparent contradictions. They're definitely not inherent ones. So we see that there's really no problem and no way to detract from that that overall experience and that testimony. So we saw three things there, the, the contingency argument, the teleological argument, and the argument from experience that just really makes the Christian God to be certain. So I, oh, I look forward to seeing uh, or hearing what uh, Justin has for us in his portion of the debate. Okay, I want to begin by thanking Jared Orm for being willing to participate in this debate and for his very clear and thought-provoking opening statement. Uh, it's, it seems clear to me that he takes his apologetic duty very seriously. Now, in my opening statement, I will briefly sketch three arguments against the existence of the Christian God, and then with my, with whatever time I have left at the end of this, I want to express some concerns I have, uh, some initial concerns with, with the arguments that Jared presented in his opening statement. So for my first argument, the existence of the universe disproves the existence of the Christian God. I'm willing to bet that nobody here seriously doubts that the universe exists, right? The, the reality of the universe and the objects within it are just too obvious to deny. I'm also willing to bet that my opponent believes that God is absolutely perfect, both morally and ontologically. So what is meant by this, though? Well, there are things called great-making properties, uh, things like power, or being loving, or having knowledge. And God has all of these properties to their maximal degree. The words of Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland can help shed some light on this. He says, quote, To say that God is perfect means that there's no possible world where he has his attributes to a greater degree. So God is not the most loving being that happens to exist. Rather, God is the most loving being that could possibly exist, so that God's possessing the attribute of being loving is to a degree such that it is impossible for him to have it to a greater degree. So the question I want to ask us here is that if the Christian God were to exist, would he actually create the universe? The theist, of course, has no options here. He has to answer yes, because after all, the universe does exist. However, 
I argue that the answer to this question is actually no, once we take the God concept seriously. The argument involves the phrase divine Trinitarian solipsism. I take this to be that possible world that God existing alone and nothing else existing. In other words, it is the possible world where God never actually creates anything. So here's the argument. There's five premises here. Premise one, if God exists, there is a possible world, divine Trinitarian solipsism, that is God existing alone and nothing else existing. All of existence is God here, right? Nothing else exists, not even empty space. So in this world, God in reality just refer to the same thing. Saying that such a world is a possible world is uncontroversial uh, because all it says is that God creates the that if God creates the universe, He does so freely rather than out of necessity. That is to say, that there would be a possible world where He doesn't create. Now, uh, premise two: If God exists, God is the best possible being. So, this means that God is a uniquely great, unimprovable being. That is to say that he is ontologically perfect and that he has all those great-making properties to their maximal degree, like I said earlier, and he has no such properties to any lesser degree. Now, I move from premise 1 and 2, and I infer to 3, is that if God exists, divine Trinitarian solipsism is the best possible world. So this is a uniquely great, unimprovable world ontologically perfect in that it has all the great-making properties to their maximal degree and no such properties to any lesser degree. Now, premise four. If divine Trinitarian solipsism is the best possible world, then the Christian God would maintain divine Trinitarian solipsism. This, I think, is also very uncontroversial. Uh, if there is a uniquely best possible world, God would either choose God would either choose to create it or maintain it, depending on his relation to it. Um, now, premise five. Divine Trinitarian solipsism is false because the universe does exist. Again, this is uncontroversial. Uh, conclusion, therefore, the Christian God, as so defined, does not exist. The conclusion follows inescapably from the premises. To rationally deny the conclusion, you need to deny one or more of the premises. Now, clearly I think that premise three is going to be the premise that is the most susceptible to attack from an apologist. I don't see how they could really reject any of the others without putting uh, some other Christian facts that they take for granted in, into serious question. So, I want to give a brief defense of premise three before moving on. For instance, the apologist might say something like, well, God can be the best possible being without it also being true that God's existing and nothing else existing would be the best possible world. Now, this position is, of course, available to the apologist, but it isn't problem-free. To take this position, he would need to do at least one of the following things. First, he would either need to identify a uniquely, a unique great-making property that's not found in the nature of God. Or, another option is, he could hold to a God that is willing to sacrifice the ontological and moral perfection of worlds on the altar of merely maximizing the number of okay quality stuff. In other words, my opponent must say that God, that the God he worships cares much more about quantity 
than he does about quality. Now, these are the only two options I, as far as I can see, to reject my argument. And, and both carry very unwelcome consequences, and perhaps we will get into those uh, in the future. Now, let's suppose that my opponent has a way out of this dilemma. Let us suppose that we're given a reason to doubt my argument and to think that, well, God would have reasons to create a universe. Now, if that's the case, then he has to deal with my second argument. But this one is not concerned with whether or not God would ever create a universe. Rather, this one is concerned with whether or not God could create a universe, even if he wanted to. Um, so, this next argument is against a timeless, intentional creator. Now, it's, of course, no secret that the traditional view has been that the Christian God is timeless, in the sense of being outside of time altogether. Now, what does this mean? It means that he's not located at any point or location in time, and he does not experience temporal succession. Um, now, for the sake of, our, of the argument, let's assume that the Big Bang is really the beginning of time itself. Let's also assume that the Big Bang requires an external cause. Christian theology says that God made the universe for a purpose, so his creation act was an intentional act. But this should immediately raise some red flags. Intentional acts that seek to create or destroy or even change anything uh, require a temporal realm. A desire, which is the motivation for a given action, must be prior to and causally related to that action if it is to be considered an intentional action. However, if time itself it has not always existed but is among the things being brought into existence by God, then we run into a difficulty because this means that God has a desire prior to both the beginning to act to bring space-time into existence and the actualization of space-time. So, the temporal relations between these different moments entail a pre-existing context of time. It entails temporal succession. This means that a timeless Christian God cannot be the cause of the universe coming into being or becoming actual at the Big Bang. Rather than an argument for Christian theism, if we accept that the Big Bang was the beginning of space and of temporal succession, it actually becomes an argument against Christian theism. Now for my final argument. The problem of evil. The existence of evil constitutes very strong evidence for atheism. In Uganda, an organized gang of chimpanzees inflicts extreme violence on another lone chimp who has wandered into their territory. They close in with a screaming frenzy, biting, kicking, inflicting powerful blows, causing horrific injury to the immobilized chimp until at last nature shows a bit of sympathy and allows him to die after several minutes of pure, horrifyingly unimaginable torture. Thanks to University of Michigan primate behavioral ecologist John Mattini and his 10-year study of a chimp community in Uganda, we now have definitive evidence that bands of chimpanzees violently kill individuals from neighboring groups in order to expand their own territory and secure additional resources. Even isolated instances of cannibalism have been observed. Now, there is very little difference between humans and chimpanzees and the other great apes. Chimpanzees, our closest cousins, are highly intelligent social animals and are especially sensitive to physical and emotional pain. 
Like humans, they exhibit a range of emotions, including pleasure, deep depression, pain, empathy, and grief. Now, why would a loving God allow this horrific suffering and the trillions of others of other examples like it? In 1983, Charles Rothenberg kidnaps his six-year-old son, David, after losing a custody battle with his ex-wife. One night, while David slept, his father, Charles, douses his body in kerosene. Now, as you can imagine, David has third-degree burns on 90% of his body. Now, why would a God permit this kind of evil? If God is all-knowing, he must know about the evils, so that's not an excuse. If God is all-powerful, he could easily prevent them, so that can't be an excuse either. And if God is all-good, it sure seems that he would want to prevent them. But I do want to give the Christian God a bit of a break here. I'm perfectly willing to grant that God may have reasons for allowing certain evils to occur in the actual world. After all, it seems very plausible that if God exists, God may have reasons for allowing some evils to ensure some greater goods, right? Um, But... And this is important, God would never allow an evil unless it was logically necessary for the actualization of some greater good. God would never allow unnecessary evils, pointless evils, gratuitous evils. But many of these evils, both in number and degree, do seem like they have no justification in the form of some greater good. Many of these evils seem like God could have easily prevented them without losing out on some greater good. I think that this fact should lead a rational person to say that probably some evils aren't just confusing, mysterious, or inscrutable, but that they are actually gratuitous, unnecessary evils. God would prevent if he existed, and so to the degree that that there are probably gratuitous evils, to that degree, God probably doesn't exist. So here's the argument. Premise one. Uh... Many evils seem gratuitous. Premise two, probably some evils are gratuitous. Premise three, if God exists, God would not permit any gratuitous evils. Conclusion, therefore, God probably does not exist. Now, you may be thinking, hold on there. You can't go from the mere fact that there are many evils that seem gratuitous and unnecessary to the claim that some probably are gratuitous. However, I disagree. I think that we make these kinds of inductive inferences all the time, and we are perfectly rational in doing so. Suppose that, after rummaging around carefully in my fridge, I can't seem to find a carton of milk. Unfortunately, this is a regular occurrence at my house. Now, naturally enough, I infer that there probably isn't one there. Nobody would say this is irrational. Now, in the same way, if some evils are such that it is incredibly difficult to find even a possible justifying reason for God to permit them, then we have very good reason, it seems, to think that probably there is no reason for God to permit them. Probably those evils are gratuitous. But God would certainly not allow gratuitous evils. And so to the degree that they probably exist, those gratuitous evils, to that degree God probably doesn't. Now, the theist has options available to him. And one of those options is that he could deny my inference from premise one to to premise two and say that we're simply not in a good position to make such probability claims about what God would allow because our moral scope is so little compared to God's. It's possible that given our limited perspective, we only see a small portion of the goods that actually exist. And so 
we should not expect to be able to find God's justifying reasons for permitting the things that he permits. So remember my fridge analogy, right? This approach would reject that fridge analogy as a false analogy. They would say that, yeah, we are, of course, warranted in concluding that probably no milk was in the fridge, but that's only because we would expect to see it if it was there. However, they would argue that if they have, or if, if you had poor eyesight, for example, then you wouldn't be justified in making such an inference because you wouldn't really expect to be able to see it if it was there. So in the same way, they're arguing, given our limited perspective to see God's justifying reasons, these, these goods that God is acting towards and so he permits evils, uh, given our inability to see those, we're simply in no position to infer that they probably don't exist. Uh, so this view, though, I, I just think is is extraordinarily implausible. And so in the words of philosopher Robert Bass of UNC, quote, evil counts against the existence of God just as crabgrass on the golf green counts against the existence of an efficient greenskeeper. Now, with the time I have left, I want to turn my attention to uh, the positive case for the Christian God that Jared presented in his opening statement. Now, if you recall, he had three arguments, and they were, first, the contingency argument for God. Second, the fine-tuning of the cosmological constants, or the teleological argument for God. And third, what Jared calls the experiential, or evidence of interaction argument for God. Now, Jared offers this, offers this group of arguments as a cumulative case for the Christian God. He says, quote, not one single argument makes it a certainty that God exists, but all three together make it very certain that the Christian God exists. But notice that there seems to be something missing here. There's, this doesn't actually seem to be true. For instance, the contingency argument and the fine-tuning argument even if they're successful, they point to a God of some type, but they certainly don't get us to a Christian God. They aren't designed to do that kind of work. Usually people present those two arguments, and then they'll also give a resurrection argument um, to make that last leap to a Christian, a specifically Christian God. But we didn't hear a resurrection argument. Instead, we hear his third argument, what he calls the argument from interaction. But of course, this argument also fails to make that necessary leap to the Christian God. So in his argument from interaction, he speaks of experiences and, and testimonies that monks, priests, and educated theologians have had. But he gives no specific examples for us to examine. So I'm not really sure that this is actually a complete argument. Also, noticeably absent from his argument is the equally compelling testimonies and experiences of educated religious authorities of other non-Christian religions. We aren't really given any reason why their experiences haven't made Jared's list. So I'm not really sure what to do with this argument. Now, if Jared wants us to believe in the Christian God, he must first tear down all three of my arguments and defend his arguments from my criticisms, some of which you've just heard and the rest of which you will hear in my rebuttal. 
Uh, unless and until he does this, I think that atheism is the more plausible position to take on the serious question, at least as to the existence of the Christian God. I want to thank Justin for his second round here in the debate, and I also want to state my excitement over an atheist that's willing to try and justify an atheistic worldview. That's not a very common practice in uh, much of the, the world today. Most people will deny in the debate any burden of proof whatsoever to, to justify an atheistic worldview. So I'm excited to see that's not going to take place here. And so just diving right into the, to the first line of argumentation that Justin lays out, I'm, I'm interested in, first for clarity to the audience, that the solipsism being used here is not necessarily in the classical sense of the idea of the solipsism being, I can only prove my own certain existence, therefore, and I can't prove anything else beyond my own existence. And that's the traditional idea of solipsism, where Justin's using it very different here and to say that it's the idea that God is the only thing to exist, and he argues from that. So while I applaud the, the actual first line of argumentation, I, I want to point out that there are, I mean, obviously things that would detract from it. The first thing is the, the Christian God through revealed theology brings us to understand perfection is brought through conflict, that God's perfection is brought to completion through suffering as with Jesus becoming a man and then suffering. Uh, it's not, enough to claim God was perfect you know, when he made that claim, but he proved that he was perfect. So nothing about the Christian God states Justin's idea of perfection is appropriate or, I mean, even problematic for the Christian God. We see also uh, in Psalm 15, for example, the approved righteousness of man or approved righteousness, righteousness that God sees in man is, comes from keeping his word to his even harm. Right, the idea that this overcoming conflict and imperfection in an imperfect world is necessary for entering God's glorified city, and this is from Genesis to Revelation. We see even in the middle of the Bible at Romans five, where in Romans five he talks about that we're bringing being brought into perfection through that suffering. That suffering brings endurance, and that endurance brings perfection. That's the idea that Paul's laying out in Christian theology. But even without this understanding of Christian theology, which is important in, I think, disproving the Christian God, but this entire argument lacks a method of justification for any other God either. Uh, what, what is it about God's perfection that gives God a mandate making it logically certain God would have generated or, I don't know, even maintained a perfect world? God being perfect does nothing to mandate the multifaceted possible motivations behind God creating or allowing an imperfect universe. So nothing within Justin's argument I see laid out a clear mandate for this. I don't think God being perfect alone does this. So in fact, Christian theology delineates the concept for achieving a perfect world that is beings would freely choose to serve God. So this cannot be achieved spontaneously but it's something that the world or people must grow into. If God did it immediately, it would no longer be perfect because it wouldn't be free will. So free will is the idea of Christian perfection in God is that for that to the world to be truly perfect, it would involve our free will. 
so are freely choosing God. So that is a Christian theological principle that can't be denied when, you know, trying to lay out a, a logical argument for the existence of God, or a logical argument denying the existence of a Christian God. Now, what Justin needs to do is show that a logical consequence of God's perfection is that God would not create an imperfect creation, uh, especially in light of Christian theology. And I think on atheism, the atheist being a mere speck of a speck of a speck of cosmic dust could not possibly speak to the motivations of a maximal being who was capable of generating the universe. So even if you ignore the idea of the Christian theology behind it, these premises I don't think could be justified on an atheistic view. You must presume another worldview to even have a speck of a speck of a cosmic dust to begin to even speculate that sentience is something relevant to such a maximal being, where Christian theology actually states that it's relevant because we are made in God's image and the sentience we're given is, is a part of the, the idea of uh, our relationship with God is based upon that sentience. So we're somehow on, on the same par and same level as God. Now, the second argument against a timeless intentional creator, uh, many differing views are held about the nature of timelessness. The most predominant view is the philosophical concept that timeless is defined as God being omnitemporal or omnitemporal, as in God exists in all of our time frames at once in relation to our understanding of time. So you can imagine this as God having a separate temporal existence and merely interacts with our temporal existence as it relates to us. But he's not limited to our temporal existence. So when we say he's timeless, it means he he literally exists in all sense of time. He's omnitemporal. And now this predominant view holds no causal issue as Justin has laid it out. So for the Christian God, or the idea of the Christian God, to get a more scientific understanding, we have a lot of great um, people who have delved into these attributes, or the specific attribute of God, and you can understand this through the dimensional sense. There's a, a same as there's a, a multiple spatial dimension, or there are multiple spatial dimensions, there's also plausibly multiple dimensions of time. So a fourth dimensional being uh, would interact with a third dimensional space, such as an entity that's not limited or restricted to three dimensions as a human is. So they would, like a, literally a fourth dimensional being can interact with a third dimension, but a third dimensional being can't interact with the additional dimension of space. That's the same concept. So we understand God is a supra-dimensional God, and this is the idea that God is outside of time, our time, but exists within uh, within an omnitemporal state. So thanks to, like I said, the Christian scholars like A.T. Schofield and Yale mathematics professor William Granville, the Christian, as of late, the Christian theologians and the mathematicians have really explored this attribute of God a bit more deeply. And I think it's just, it's not really a cause concern to the Christian God, given the idea that we know there is the possibility or plausibility of additional temporal states of existence outside of our own, and that, that God being omnitemporal is not actually outside even the realm of understanding. So now we come to the, the third argument, the problem of evil. I, I truly enjoy this argument against the existence of God. And the reason why I enjoy the, discussing this argument, because it has probably the most impact, I think, in the world today. Um, it's the one that is the most touted, so to speak. Now, because the, the branch of theology called special revelation from the Christian texts, 
that gives an explanatory, explanatory power to resolve these apparent conflicts. So the the argument that Justin lays out sounds to me very similar to Walter Sinat Armstrong's evidential problem of evil. Now, it's a little bit formulated a little differently, but the same kind of concept. There's as much of this new blend of logical and evidential problems of evil. And he, he begins to give an argument with the, the chimpanzees as an example, much as WSA does. And so I guess the first logical part of this argument is if God is truly omnipotent, then he's powerful enough to fix the world at a later date. So there's really no logical contradiction from the perspective of God. There's no problematic idea here that somehow omni, omnipotent God is, is incapable of fixing it at a later date. The fact that he doesn't fix it right now and we're going through it is, is largely irrelevant to that idea of a God who can fix it at a future date. So there's truly no inconsistency with the logic if he's truly omnipotent and he, he doesn't need to act right now. He can act at a future date to make it no longer a problem. But what about the emotional side of it, the evidential side of it, the, the example of the brutality and what uh, Justin lays out as the gratuitous nature of that evil? And to summarize the, the premises, he's basically saying, because we cannot find a justification of that apparent evil, therefore that evil must be classified as gratuitous. And I, that's just, that's really, I think, a blatant statement. And I'll say it again. We cannot find a justification of that evil. Therefore, it must be gratuitous. Now, the moment I can give a justification of benefit from an act of evil, at that point, it no longer becomes gratuitous at the, at the moment by this rationale. And that's really, I guess, the challenge of it. Because on atheism, again, a speck of a speck of dust in a cosmic dust bowl, uh, has no expected capacity to determine the possible justification of an entity that is decidedly bigger, right? So, so though the analogy of the carton of milk is great at explaining the complaint, it does nothing to validate the complaint. I'll use another analogy. A five-year-old complains to their parent about having to do chores or other character-building scenarios which they clearly don't like. Now, the child's inability to understand what it believes to be gratuitous punishment there's nothing to invalidate the fact it's a good thing. I mean, the child's ability to understand or grasp the parent's decisions and allowances is not, there's not sufficient reasoning to support that the parents are out to get the children or, or much less that the parents don't exist. The, the close proximity of, of parent and child relationship only is exacerbated by the idea of an infinite God, maximal supreme being compared to a speck of a speck of a speck of a cosmic dust. So, and, and Justin anticipates this kind of response and seems to suggest he just doesn't like it. Uh, I'm not sure that, I mean, he gives the, the no justification or actual refutation to this, to the obvious response, but he just says he doesn't like it and it, it just seems to be wrong to him. So I'd have to ask why. I mean, especially it's obvious enough that a speck of cosmic dust cannot hope to make such a complaint against a God. Now, the Christian God of revealed theology doesn't, does not allow truly gratuitous evils. We see the Noahide account, the Sodom and Gomorrah account. God, in fact, states that there is a certain line that is not allowed to be crossed, or God will act. 
He, he allows the God of this world to, to govern up to a point, and he allows human nations to correct themselves, and the God of this world being Satan. He's the actual God of this world. Or more specifically, allows humans to enact punishment and correction, right? I mean, he, where, where this fails, God then has his archangels step in. So what I find really amusing, usually at this point, is that the atheist will turn and typically condemn God for acting, Right, so he jumps in like the Noahide accounts. It's genocide, or um, these are all these irrational complaints. Uh, the same way, as, like, if God killed Hitler as a baby, atheists would call him a baby murderer, and and they say, why did he not act? But if God allows Hitler to live, atheists yell, God is a mass murderer. Why did he not allow? Why did he, why did he not act to stop Hitler? So it's it's it should be obvious that such complaints are not an invalidation of any god, much less the Christian God. Certainly not acting as the atheist desires does nothing to speak against the existence of God. Now, back to the actual argument I laid out in the first round, I want to address that very quickly. Now, I don't think Justin is conceding the, the CA or the teleological arguments. He seems to be more formally expressing his bafflement at the experiential argument and how it supports Christianity, and probably more so my limited explanation in round one. But if you recall, I, I did encourage a follow-along with a link on the website, so I do encourage all of the listeners to do that. Now, as it is the first time Justin is encountering this argument, I'll elaborate on this third argument. The CEA proves the irrefutable logic that's mandated of a non-physical, self-existent prime mover. The teleological argument then mandates this prime mover is an involved God and has a targeted purpose for us. This leaves us with the question, who is this God, and how can he be known? Or more specifically, why does not why does most of the world affirm this Christian God? What is the preponderant evidence that makes their specific God real? And this, is, of course, is where the experiential argument answers. Uh, Christianity offers more experiential power than any other worldview. Now, you'll hear different take-ons from scholars like William Lane Craig, but it's essentially the same argument. William Lane Craig will state to you that you too can personally experience Jesus. No atheist is inherently unable to experience God or is bereft of such an experience with God. This is the core of the experiential argument. Christianity has that experiential power. From all the saints of all denominations and to all the theological scholars of all denominations, the Christian experience and confirmation offers more explanatory power than any other worldview. So that's the idea and the kernel of the experiential argument. You have literally hundreds of millions of theologians and billions of converts saying that there's some some sort of explanatory power behind the experience that is truly the Christian experience, and that's what validates it. Now, I look forward to hearing what Justin has for us in the following round. Thanks again to Jared for that response. Let's first look at my arguments and his responses to them. So, uh, recall that my first argument against the existence of God was that the universe, the existence of the universe, disproves the existence of God. Now, as a side note, if my use of the phrase divine Trinitarian solipsism is confusing to anybody, I do apologize. Uh, they can just substitute the phrase with how I defined it as that possible world that is God existing alone and nothing else existing. Uh, that should be sufficient for our purposes here. Now, in response to this first argument, Jared says, quote, The Christian God, through revealed theology, brings us to understand that perfection is brought through conflict, that God's perfection is brought to completion through the suffering of Jesus. He goes on. He says, It's not enough to claim that God was perfect, uh, but he proved that he was perfect, unquote. Now, this seems 
very unclear to me, almost contradictory. And I also had doubts that Jared really believed that God's perfection is brought to completion through suffering. So I emailed Jared and asked for clarification. So what he meant to say is that there are two aspects of Christian theology that showed that this argument wasn't actually a problem for Christianity. And he lays those out very clearly for us. He says, humanity's perfection is brought about through suffering. And secondly, that God's perfection is brought, I'm sorry, is proven through suffering. So those are the two claims that defeat this argument as an argument against Christianity. Unfortunately, I don't really see how this does address the argument I made. I am asking why God was motivated to create the universe, not how the universe should function once it already exists. Perhaps humans do reach perfection when they experience suffering. I doubt it, but maybe this is true. I don't see how that alone would answer the question of why an ontologically perfect God, being the only thing that existed, would create in the first place, especially when doing so would actively degrade the quality of that world by introducing things with grape-making properties, but grape-making properties that aren't maximally extended, like those uh, in the nature of God. Now, Jared then moves on to say that sentient creatures with free will is something that God would want, and so he created them. Presumably, though, Jared thinks that God would be free and sentient even if nothing else existed. So God wouldn't need to create creatures to instantiate the goods of free will and sentience if he already was the perfect instantiation of free will and sentience. But I don't see how these points serve to undermine that, my argument either. Secondly, how would suffering prove God's perfection? Why would God create humans simply to prove something to them? This is just inventing a problem so that you can spend time solving it. Not a particularly impressive picture of the divine. A maximally great being would always prefer and therefore preserve a world composed entirely of every great-making property, each extended to their respective maximal degrees. So if we must commit ourselves to the notion that our universe was created, we must be committed equally to the notion that no maximally great being exists. Now, I don't think Jared has given us any reason to think that my argument isn't a successful one against the Christian God. Now, on to my second argument. This one was against a timeless, intentional creator. Jared, in response, reminds us that God is omnitemporal, as in God exists in all of our time frames at once. He thinks that this does away with my argument. But my opponents claim that God is omnitemporal doesn't begin to address the actual problem I raise in my second atheistic argument. And this is because omnitemporality and timelessness are two different concepts. Omnitemporality means to exist at every moment in time, and does not address that which is causally prior to time existing in the first place, which is the central thrust of my argument. To suggest omnitemporality as a defeater to my argument is either to misunderstand the argument given or to misunderstand the concept of omnitemporality. As for God having his own, his own special God time, this is a misunderstanding of timelessness. Timelessness means that God is not located at any point or location in time and does not experience temporal succession. If God had his own version of time, he would be experiencing temporal succession and therefore would not be timeless. I don't think that my opponent has given us any reason to think that my argument isn't a successful one against the Christian God. 
And now for my third argument. Recall that my key inference in the evidential problem of evil that I presented was from the fact that many, many evils seem gratuitous to the fact that probably some are gratuitous. Jared is not alone in his response. By far, the most popular response to the evidential problem of evil is to deny this inference by noting that our cognitive capacities are so limited that we only see a tip of the iceberg of the, po- of the various possible justifying goods for which God acts. So that we are simply not in a position to make probability claims like the one I need for this argument to actually work. So back to the fridge example I gave. Jared's position says that we have very bad eyesight, so that we aren't really justified in saying that probably no milk is in the fridge because we shouldn't expect to see it if it was there. So the same goes for our inability to see uh, the overarching goods that justify God's permitting the evils that he permits. The fact that we can't see God's reasons for allowing the child to be tortured doesn't in any way mean that probably no such reasons exist. Jared says, under Christianity, we shouldn't expect to see or understand such reasons. And so the fact that we can't see a reason for God to allow terrible suffering gives us no reason to expect that such a reason doesn't exist. Now, in the literature, this response is called skeptical theism. Unfortunately for me, this means that my evidential problem of evil argument will have to be set aside. Now, let's turn to Jared's arguments for the existence of the Christian God. Let's start with fine-tuning argument. Um, Jared's argument says that there are certain cosmological constants that are finely tuned for the existence of life, and that this cannot be explained by chance or physical necessity, and so the only reasonable option available to us is design, essentially theism. However, my opponent's response to my evidential problem of evil has highlighted an inconsistency in his overall case for Christian theism. In his article titled, The Problem of Evil, Skeptical Theism Leads to Moral Paralysis, Scott Sian of Bowdoin College writes, Theism explains fine-tuning only if we have some expectation about what a good God would do, and in particular, that he would want to create a universe with conditions appropriate to life. Now, of course, his point is that you can't insulate your epistemic humility and assume that it conveniently only applies when God fails to prevent children from being tortured. If you don't have access to the reasons for which God acts, or the reasons why God allows particular instances of suffering, then you need to be consistent and admit that the probability of a fine-tuned universe given your form of theism is completely unavailable to you. Now, with the probability of fine-tuning given theism being inscrutable, the fine-tuning argument is now really only between chance or necessity as a way to explain the fine-tuning. And suddenly, the argument doesn't really seem to be that interesting anymore. Now, on to his argument from interaction. This is a kind of argument from religious experience. Um, He seems to be saying that uh, the best explanation for the profound experiences of priests, monks, and other educated theologians is that theism is true. Now, we know that priests, monks, and educated theologians are not the only people susceptible to these experiences. Many educated uh, people from other mutually exclusive faith traditions also report profound life-changing experiences, and yet they are left out of the data pool for some reason. 
I must ask my opponent, why are we only including those people from your preferred religion? Shouldn't the fact that many extremely intelligent people that claim intense experiences in contradictory religions undermine Jared's inference here? Clearly, these experiences are not reliably truth-seeking, right? If, if a lot of people can have them, uh, but they're mutually exclusive experiences about mutually exclusive religions. And so I, I think it's fairly clear that, that this argument isn't really a compelling argument. Now on to the contingency argument. Jared's argument from contingency is the version of the Leibnizian cosmological argument that Stephen T. Davis created and that popular apologist William Lane Craig defends. Let's begin by examining the first premise. The first premise, if you recall, is anything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in terms of the necessity of its own nature or in terms of an external cause. Now, these two options are certainly mutually exclusive and all-encompassing categories. I mean, that is to say that there's no third category. However, as Philippe Leon of the Ex-Apologist blog points out, the first premise has at least two possible interpretations. For example, a being whose existence is explained in terms of the necessity of his own nature could either be a metaphysically necessary being or a factually necessary being. So metaphysically necessary beings exist in all possible worlds. But factually necessary beings are eternal, indestructible, and uncaused beings at every possible world at which they do exist, even if it's the case that they don't exist at all possible worlds. Now with this distinction in mind, it might be that factually necessary beings are the particulars with which dependent beings are entirely composed. Under this view, a dependent being comes into existence when two or more factually necessary beings are combined. And, of course, the dependent beings would no longer exist once the factually necessary beings come apart. Now, the factually necessary beings, which act as the particulars that fully compose dependent beings, cannot pass away because, as, as I said before, their inner nature makes them eternal, indestructible, and and uncaused in all of those possible worlds that they do exist, even if, of course, they don't exist at all possible worlds. Now, if we accept the possibility that matter energy could be a factually necessary being, then the argument faces a very big problem. To see this, we need to return back to those two possible interpretations of premise one. Um, so first, let's look at the metaphysical necessity version. So this version would state that Anything that exists has an explanation of its existence either in terms of the metaphysical necessity of its own nature or in terms of an external cause. But of course, if the scenario I presented is even possible, this premise must be rejected. Now, does the argument fare any better on the factual necessity interpretation of premise one? Unfortunately not. The factual necessity interpretation of premise one serves as a defeater for premise two. Remember, premise two is if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. This would have to be rejected if it is even possible uh, that matter energy is a factually necessary being. I apologize to everybody for my labored breathing. Hopefully it doesn't bother you too much. Uh, like all holiday colds, this one isn't very fun. But uh, I'm not dying, I assure you of that. Now, in the last round, Justin felt my response to his first argument was almost contradictory. So as with many Christian theological teachings, the statement that response is common. 
like with the triune nature of God. Like how can God be three and yet still be one when we when we describe the Trinity? God's triune nature is sometimes he takes years to develop and understand the concepts, but Chrysostom said it very simply and succinctly. He states that the concept is understood as we all share one man's essence, that's Adam, right? And yet we're all still separate people. So all the persons of the Godhead share the same essence of God. They share the divine essence, but they're separate people. My explanation to him was meant to convey that it only seems contradictory. God being perfect is different than him experiencing perfection while under trial. Kind of two different elements there. So Satan accused God, much like he accused Job. He said, like, skin for skin, take away all that Job has and see if Job's going to still serve you. That same accusation was put against God in the Supreme Court of Heaven. Skin for skin, you too would fail if you're put in human circumstances. You wouldn't be a good God. So Satan was clearly wrong. God actually was perfect while going through humanity, being experiencing humanity. So that's the concept there that I'm trying to relay. So it's always a challenge to convey these theological underpinnings that resolve all the questions. I mean, after four millennia of theology, all these questions have been asked and answered in the past. Now, Justin molds his first argument a bit with some more directed observations that he formulates into actually direct questions. Like, why God was motivated to create the universe in the first place? Or this is what his, his arguments is actually asking. So why did God create the universe in the first place? Or why would an ontologically perfect God being the only thing that exists, why would that create in the first place? So this response to defend this contention seems to be more an argument from ignorance. Justin is saying that, and tacitly saying, that if Jared can't describe the reasoning for the omnimax being, then his first contention is to stand, at least for this debate. Well, the issue is, even if I do a poor job at it, generally the audience can come up with a litany of answers to those questions. So clearly this argument doesn't stand. I mean, let me draw out this reasoning to show it to you. Imagine if I stated about evolution in a debate. I said, because scholars cannot explain everything or even the abiogenesis of life, thus evolution is not true and my argument's more reasonable. Well, I mean, if Justin failed to address my complaint here on evolution, if we're actually debating evolution, the audience would not be swayed by that. So, I mean, at least with evolution, I'm on the same level as scholars being human. We're not, not I mean, Justin's not even on the same level with God being divine essence, right? I mean, this entity that's outside the universe that created the universe, there's no comparison, there's no common ground there. So clearly a more plausible rationale has to be given by Justin to defend this contention, and he can't just wash away saying that, well, I don't like Jared's answer, it wasn't good, so I win. <laughs> you know, that kind of concept there is like, my argument stands, it's more valid, it's more reasonable. And that's, you know, just not not the case. So um, the Christian theological explanation is more than sufficient to deny the, the first argument. So, but Justin continues to make these broad, unjustified assertions like God being perfect necessitates that he would be alone when never such a rationale is justified. And I asked before, why? What makes this true? Why would God being perfect not believe conflict is perfection? So, I mean, what if he just has a different idea? God's got a different idea of perfection. Or why having other beings being brought into perfection isn't more perfect? And especially, that's what the Christian Bible claims, that this, this, there's a purpose, a reasoning behind all of this, all this suffering, uh, but there's a reason behind all of the, the, the trials and the conflict. And I have a perfect plan for it. That's the idea there. So there's, God's idea of perfection and Justin's have to be commingled here and he has to get some sort of rationale for it. Now, to move on to the time argument, he, he feels I misunderstood his argument about timeless, 
a timeless entity being unable to create. That God doesn't experience temporal succession, so thus God would not be able to create the first temporal event. So to, to and so I understand that, I just to make that clear, but I want to quote St. Augustine. St. Augustine stated, For if eternity and time be rightly distinguished, time never be in extent without motion, and eternity to admit no change, who would not see that time could not have been being before some variable creature had come into existence? So this logical refutation of justice and complaint was resolved way back in 400 AD. And to put it in a bit modern language, the idea of the first event was the start of time to avoid the infinite regression. The logically mandated prime mover had to be outside of such a time a time event, and therefore the prime mover must be timeless. So here Justin says, no, a being that is timeless could not create a first event. Justin is arguing that there is there is no time to create, thus God could not have created anything. So as somehow timelessness means that there's a freezing concept to God, well, there's a bit of confusion when, when that's trying to be rationalized there on what the nature of what we mean by when I say timeless. So conversion theory in physics derives from the concept that there are particles that existed prior to time that are not time-dependent, that there are timeless particles, that there's some sort of existence that does not depend upon time. We see this in the concept of like negative energy and the prediction of like a negative energy space drive, a space engine, the, that you would actually have instantaneous velocities. Now, a lot of backgrounds behind that, but the idea here of a timeless existence is actually frozen, is very not not in science, it's not in philosophy, it's not even in theology. So even though we're all using the same word, we all mean the same thing, that doesn't mean that there's some sort of frozen existence. So we can actually tap into negative energy. So negative energy, negative particles can interact with time-dependent particles and change them, but the other the other particles themselves would not be changed. So some sort of unchanging existence within those particles. So it's very much in physics. So this leads us to understand that such a being, like God, would, through logical consequence, be omnitemporal. It's a being who has no beginning, no end, and is unchangeable because that being is literally complete. So as in science, God's very omnitemporal nature explains how God can be omnipresent as well. His existence is not dependent, nor is it, it's not time dependent, nor is it space dependent. So most people would not, I mean, anyone that has, a, has no problem rationalizing how and calculating in your mind how God can be everywhere present and how that's possible, then you're also not going to really have a problem with God being every time present. Now, he does go on to the problem of evil, and he, he sets it aside because he, he I think he agrees that a being that is a speck of a speck of dust on a cosmic speck of dust, the earth, right? Uh, that's what we all are on, on atheism. We're all just specks of dust. That, that such a being could not possibly speak to the motivations of, of a god if God's, first of all, going to resolve all the problems in the future. If he's omnipotent, he certainly can do that, right? And then, of course, if God, you know, I, his idea is, is all the good works that are going to come out of this are actually a benefit for humanity. We couldn't possibly judge a god on that. So then he moves on to the teleological argument after setting aside the, the problem of evil. Now here, in addressing this argument, Justin seems to, to just make baseless assertions and even some substantiated links between the problem, problem of evil and the teleological argument. Now, Stephen Law, an atheist, wrote a paper on this concept and recognizes that the teleological argument would merit even an evil God. And as he points out, theologians agree with that. 
we do. That the teleological argument does not address the nature of God's actions, whether those are good or evil. It merely displays a clear logical mandate that design is the only possible explanation for the universe. So God could be completely evil and have nothing but evil intentions, but the teleological argument has nothing to do with that. It doesn't even bother to, to address that. And as I clearly stated before, physical necessity, before there was anything physical, just didn't operate. So that could not have created the universe. And of course, chance doesn't do anything by itself. Chance doesn't exist or operate on its own. And of course, there's no other option. There's no fourth option there. So design is the only intent that we know that could actually have generated anything. Now, to the experiential argument, Justin claims the data pool is only Christian. Somehow this can, is, is a problem for the experiential argument. Uh, and I think, again, he misunderstands the experiential argument. He also seems to claim that the other religions produce mutually exclusive experiences. So Justin's assertion here is not accurate to the reality of the experiences or even the argument I was trying to relay. Christian theology does not deny religious experiences for, of the other religions. The only issue that arises is if the claims of those other sentient entities are actually true. So like humans, the other gods can lie. But we don't deny the experiences or the existence of those gods. So Christian theology teaches that since the beginning, Satan has been the god of this world, and with his little fallen angels, his, he sets up a pantheon of gods, and they did their little things, you know, fertility or whatever, and he has attempted to rule over the world. So Christianity doesn't deny any supernatural experience, whether magic, ghosts, or whatever. The clear experiential power of Christianity is the heart of this argument, though. That is the casting out of demons or exorcisms of ghosts and the general defeater. Throughout history, the Christian gods' claims have far more merit than the claims of the other supernatural entities based upon experiential power. So you can actually experience God, and the Christian God is undefeated. So when you go into a situation, you are undefeated in that sense. So when you experience God, you're able to understand that argument a lot better. Now, he jumps into the contingency argument here, and he brings up some of the discussion points that are really irrelevant. I think he confuses, or, or source confuses, the idea between the best possible worlds argument and the contingency argument. Now, I don't mind this because as with this debate, and I would contend if atheists understood theistic arguments and were able to explain them, well, they'd be theists, right? <laughs> so, it's very comforting, again, that the, the atheists don't necessarily know what these arguments are talking about. So, in philosophy, the, the necessary existence of God is discussed in the sense of a best possible world. This is a discussion of a must-God-exist. Now, this has nothing to do with the CA, the contingency argument. Justin's responses are just not relevant because the, the CA is pure and simple, shows that the prime mover is logically mandated, that something outside the universe caused the first event within the universe. Now, the nature of the being isn't speculated, just understood to be transcendent, timeless entity. So the CA has nothing to do with the nature or the character of God as the prime mover. Now, Justin was addressing a best possible world's argument rather than the CA. His blogger source apparently was a bit confused in the subject. The discussion of God's being necessary is very different than his self-existent nature from necessity. Even though necessary and necessity are, are, are words that are used in those statements, it doesn't mean the same thing. So, like, the self-existent nature would be like numerical values, right? Like the numerical values of numbers. They are metaphysically self-existence. 
or existent, which is not the same as discussing a metaphysically necessary quality that's possessed by those numbers. So numbers must exist in all 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 possible worlds. We just we we conceive of that, and so that's the necessary the metaphysically necessary quality of existence that's different than being contingent or non-conditioned on the self-existence that exists by its own nature. So to say numbers are self-existent, uncaused and not contingent and not any other thing is nothing similar and very different than to say they exist necessarily in all possible worlds. The CA is, is discussing causality, not possible worlds. So when premise one uses the term necessity of its own nature, it's discussing non-contingency. It's not discussing necessary existence. In Justin's defense, though, this is a common internet confusion that exists out there, even among undergraduate philosophers. And I'm certain he was getting his background from one of the, the confused addresses. So what we see in the cumulative argument here for Christianity is just very powerful and undeterred in our discussion here. The cumulative case stands that the CA shows that a prime mover is certain to exist and is logically mandated. The teleological argument shows that a designer is the only possible cause. And the experiential argument shows that the experiential power and explanation for Christianity is unrivaled throughout the world and has nothing to the fact that all other gods existing is actually an explanation from Christianity yet again. So it causes no problem to the Christian God when he even says all the other gods exist too, and they're just liars. <laughs> so I await Justin's response. Jared claims my first argument is an argument from ignorance, but this is not true. It is not that I'm saying I can't think of why a perfect God would create, therefore a perfect God can't create. That's not my argument. Uh, you'll recall that my argument attempts to take the God concept and show that such a God would intentionally maintain a perfect state of affairs. And then I go on to argue that such a state would be a state where all the great-making properties exist to their maximal degrees, and no such properties exist to any lesser degree. In other words, such a state of affairs would be one where God exists alone and nothing else exists. So, Jared goes on to pitch to us the idea that, well, perhaps God might think that conflict itself is a perfection. And I'm going to assume that by a perfection, he means something like a great-making property, uh, and I, I hope I'm reading him correctly here. So, Jared's essentially saying that, well, perhaps conflict is a great-making property alongside things like knowledge, love, and power. Now, ignoring that this would be a huge violation of generally shared moral knowledge, of what we all generally agree the good is, if conflict were a great-making property, then it sure seems that God would need to have conflict within the Godhead perhaps between the three persons of the Trinity. Now, if God doesn't have uh, any intrinsic conflict in his nature, then he doesn't possess all the great-making properties in an essential way. And so, according to Jared, it seems that God can't be perfect in the sense that I discussed earlier. So the question is, does Jared think that there exists essential intrinsic conflict among the divine persons of the Trinity? Now, I very much doubt that Jared thinks this, and so I very much doubt that Jared really thinks that it's plausible that conflict could be a great-making property. Jared also says that, well, perhaps 
a world where God brings humans to perfection would be a more perfect world than a world where, uh, you know, only God exists. Now, I guess I don't really know what this means. Is Jared suggesting that some humans eventually acquire all the great-making properties to their maximal degree? That some become maximally great? Humans can never be all-powerful because Jared believes God is sovereign. That prevents them from being omnipotent for obvious reasons. If humans can never be all-powerful, then in what sense could they possibly be absolutely perfect? It is clear that Jared means something different when he uses the word perfect and attaches it to God than when he attaches it to humans. And so I think that Jared's response to this argument, that all of his responses to this argument, are, are not going to work for him. Now, in addressing the second argument, uh, my argument against a timeless, intentional creator, Jared quotes Augustine from The City of God. And as a quick reminder, I'll, I'll read the relevant quote. Um, Augustine writes, For if eternity and time be rightly distinguished, time never to be extent without motion, and eternity to admit no change, who would not see that time could not have being before some variable creature had come into existence. Now, I think it's actually quite clear that this quote actually supports my argument. The quote distinguishes Augustine's concept of time, uh, that is, the kind of medium in which change takes place, and his concept of eternity, a changeless essence that doesn't experience temporal succession. Augustine then says that Prior to variable creatures existing, right, prior to, you know, any, any kind of things that can change, there could have been no time. That is to say that there would have been no change, and that is exactly my point. The problem is that when you say God created the universe intentionally, you are saying that God has a desire prior to both the beginning to act to bring space-time into existence and the actualization of of that space-time. Now, at the very least, these several different moments I'm referring to must be temporally distinct, as they are not identical to each other. Passing from one to the next requires change, and therefore requires time. In other words, time must have existed prior to God intentionally creating time. And so if we, and so if we assume that space-time has a beginning, and that it needed a cause, and that a tensed theory of time is true, then it could not have been created by the intentional action of a timeless personal agent. Now, Jared's response to my problem of evil was to say that because we are a speck of a speck of dust, we simply aren't in a position to assign probabilities as to what God would or wouldn't be motivated to do. And I don't have an interest in fighting this point, um, but I will hold Jared to consistency. So I'm going to drop my evidential problem of evil, as I, as I already said, and I'm just going to hold Jared to consistency here. So that brings us to Jared's theistic arguments, teleological fine-tuning argument. Jared correctly points out the obvious fact that the fine-tuning argument does not tell us anything about the character of the fine-tuner. It's just not designed to do such a thing. And this is, of course, true, but... As I pointed out, Jared's response to the evidential problem of evil leaves him in no position to assign probabilities to what God would or wouldn't do. 
Now, Jared cannot infer from the appearance of fine-tuning to the claim that a God's intentional action explains that fine-tuning unless Jared is in a position to say uh, that God probably would create a universe finely tuned for life. Because to say that God probably would create a universe finely tuned for life would require having knowledge of the correct account of the goods that motivate God's actions. Unfortunately, such goods are unavailable to specks of specks of specks of dust like Jared and I. Moreover, this kind of epistemic humility about the goods which motivate God has further damaging effects. It may be the case that God has lied to us all throughout the biblical text that he has inspired. Now, it's of course possible that God has justifying reasons for lying to us in the Bible. Perhaps those reasons are similar to reasons God has for allowing children to be tortured, in that they're the kinds of reasons that just don't seem like they actually exist. But, of course, like that fridge analogy, the fact that Jared can't think of possible or the fact that Jared can't see or, or think of possible justifying reasons for God's lying to us in no way means that no such reasons actually exist, because, again, being mere specks of dust, Jared shouldn't expect to see such reasons. Like Jared's inability to assign probabilities as to whether God would create a universe finely tuned for life, Jared is also not in a position to say that God probably has or probably hasn't lied to us in the biblical text. Consequently, Jared is in no position to say that Jesus is probably the Son of God or probably isn't the Son of God. Jared is just a speck of dust after all. Now, I'm willing to bet that Jared is quite confident that Jesus really is the Son of God and that God has not lied to us in the Bible. But frankly, it is impossible to see how Jared could even hope to justify his picking and choosing which of God's motivating reasons to be epistemically humble about enough to avoid the problem of evil, and which of God's motivating reasons to be supremely epistemically confident about enough to say that God probably would create a universe finely tuned for life, and enough to say that lying is something that God couldn't possibly have morally sufficient reasons to do. On to Jared's experiential argument. Jared argues that my criticism of his, of his experiential argument, his argument from religious experience, is irrelevant because Christianity is consistent with people believing other things and having other experiences. Now, of course, I never claim that the fact that people from other religions have religious experiences, I never claimed that that was inconsistent with Christianity. That wasn't my criticism. My claim was that the inference from the fact that there are that there exist um, Christians who have religious experience to the claim that Christianity is true is completely unjustified because other experiences from other mutually exclusive religions would need to be taken into account in that kind of inference. And of course, once that's done, it would severely undermine the key inference in Jared's argument. And Jared then goes on to make some very confusing statements. Um, perhaps I'm, I'm mishearing him here. I... Uh, he, he says, we don't deny the experience or the existence of these other gods. Now, I apologize. I always thought that Christianity was supposed to be a monotheistic religion, but I'm just going to have to uh, 
fault my theological ignorance on this point. Now on to the contingency argument. Now, I really have no idea why Jared thinks I was discussing a best possible worlds argument, because I never actually used the phrase best possible worlds in my response here. Uh, I do, of course, use possible world semantics of modal logic, but that's just to tease out the different conceptions of necessity that can be found in different interpretations of that first premise. Jared then goes on to entirely miss the point, I think, of, of my criticism, which was that a person has at least two interpretations available to them in assessing premise one, and, and that neither of them get close to entailing God as long as it is possible that matter energy could be a factually necessary being. Now, of course, if Jared wants to say that that kind of thing is impossible, then he would need an argument. Thank you. We've reached the closing statements in our debate here. I'm going to go first, then Justin will give his closing statement. I'm going to recap both my three arguments and Justin's three arguments. And to start with the contingency argument, here in this argument, I don't, it does not seem to have been addressed comprehensively. Uh, I don't feel that it was. This is really a foundational argument as it shows a logical mandate that a prime mover exists, which, of course, is what the Christians claim that their God is. And on a second argument, as to the teleological point, Justin, again, is saying that I must have some knowledge of the divine's intentions to claim that the universe was fine-tuned. And this is certainly not true. Teleology, fine-tuning, intelligent design, all these, that does not need to know anything about the originator. It is entirely working backwards with what we do know now and seeing a logical mandate from everything that we know in actuality. The whole reason of the evidential popularity and the, the sanguine conversions that follow from that is the fact that it is obvious for even one who knows nothing about God that the universe has the hallmarks of design. So Justin further, furthers this concept with a, a bit of confusion on the what I'm saying about a spe, the speck of dust to try and be consistent here. Well, well, on atheism, there's no good reason to know anything about God. On atheism, we're all just cosmic dust. This is a problem for atheists. But on Christianity, we're all, we, we as Christians are all in a relationship with God and each individual is eminently important. We do, as Christians, have good reasons to know things and make claims about God beyond the ordinary experience of the atheist. The power of teleology, which again is entirely working backwards from self-evidence of our existence, with a resulting concept that even a speck of dust can see that there is a designer, is that even if that speck of dust cannot know anything about the nature of the, the designer himself, that person of the designer or that impersonal force, they can see the design elements. Now, the third argument I gave was one that's very much a Christian relative statement. It's very important to, that this one right here shows and relates to the atheist that the Christian God is real. And it, and it seems here that Justin reiterated the same point I had already addressed. The Christian explanatory power here is that we have an active relationship with the Christian God. Even if others have relationships also with their gods, that's irrelevant. What Justin needed to show in this debate that somehow Christians or Christian claims of experiencing their god, that the claims that have shaped the world as we know it, 
is not good evidence for the Christian God's existence. And we do not see that. Also, to the concept of many gods, little g-gods are different in Christian theology than the big g-god, right? The capital G. We're, we are Trinitarian monotheists as Christians. We believe in the, the Godhead, the single monotheistic Godhead, who has, is encompassed in three persons. And we, but we also recognize that Satan is God of this world, and he's a little g god. Of course, he set up his pantheon of fallen angels, and that's that's the the part of that theology that is relevant there that Justin was bringing up. So now to Justin's three arguments, we we start his first argument from perfection is the idea that without some sort of justification from Justin, Justin can spend his time wrapping around my responses, and I'm sure that's exactly what the audience will do as well. Uh, but I want to be clear here that we need a from Justin a justification method that states perfection in any Christian explanatory sense mandates God would be the only thing to exist. And I don't think we got that in the debate. We did not have anything meeting that need or that justification to make this argument even possibly true. So it's not even possibly true by anything that we had already discussed. Justin's second argument with quoting Augustine, he said that Augustine supports him. <laughs> I find that amusing as Augustine clearly was asserting that God was outside of time and generating the universe, which is a, what Justin, Justin is arguing against. In response to Justin, that no one references timeless objects, not scientists, not theologians, not philosophers, and these timeless objects that are restricted to some frozen conceptual state. No one's saying that the time-independent objects are unable to interact with time-dependent ones. The idea here is that it is logically follows that God is not time-dependent, and in an omnitemporal state. He's not frozen, but he is everywhere in all times present. So I do not feel that there's a proper response to this point showing the argument was clearly flawed to the concept of which we're, the God we're discussing, or even in, in a scientific realm. Now, Justin had dropped his problem of evil, and which was a pleasure to meet an atheist debater that accepted that it was not valid. Um, I was excited about that. I also enjoyed the heck out of this debate and, and look forward to many future debates with Justin that are just as substantive as this one has been. In his closing statement, Jared worries that I've not addressed his contingency argument comprehensively, but he gives no details as to why he thinks this is. He doesn't address any of my specific criticisms. Um, and so I hope that he can forgive me for moving on to his next argument, the fine-tuning argument. Jared makes what I think is a very big mistake when he says that the proponent of the design argument doesn't need to know anything about the designer because it works backwards from the evidence. But how could this possibly be? It appears that Jared is confused about what design arguments generally attempt to do. Generally speaking, design arguments and including the fine-tuning argument, they rely on the assumption that we can know something about the designer's motivations, those ends which a designer's actions would likely be aimed at. Now, in this case, of course, we would need to know that a designer would be very likely, or at least more likely than pure chance, to create a universe finely tuned for life. Before we can say that positing a designer has any hope of explaining the particular arrangement of these cosmological constants. Jared is not doing himself any explanatory favors by just positing a designer whose intentions are utterly mysterious. That does no work for him. But Jared has said that even the theist is not in a position to place probabilities on what God would or wouldn't do or allow. And he makes this move in an attempt to undermine the key inference in the problem of evil. 
Surely now the Ojerid can see that his reply to the problem of, uh, to the problem of evil undercuts his fine-tuning argument as it empties the designer hypothesis of any expectations and in doing so fails to explain the apparent fine-tuning that we see. So what Jared needs is some principled reason, some principled reason to be skeptical about his knowledge of the goods that might justify the designers allowing the number and degree of the sufferings in order to avoid the evidential problem of evil, while at the same time allowing him intimate knowledge about the goods that motivate the kinds of things such a designer would likely create in the first place. Now, obviously Jared has given us no such principled reason in support of this epistemic distinction because Jared doesn't even know or doesn't even think he needs to know anything about the designer's intentions to say the designer explains the fine-tuning. Now, if Jared has no principled reason in maintaining both, it seems to me that Jared needs to choose between either skepticism about the designer's reasons and knowledge of the designer's reasons if he wants to avoid the charge of self-serving inconsistencies. Now, as to his argument from religious experience, I just want to remind us all that I was attacking the inference from the fact that many Christians have religious experiences to the claim that therefore Christianity is probably true. That's the inference I was attacking. I couldn't care less if Christianity has some internal expectation that other religions would form and worship quote-unquote lesser gods. Jared is smart enough to know that pointing out this kind of expectation does nothing to save the key inference in his argument that I was attacking. Now on to my arguments. <clears throat> in response to my perfect creator argument, Jared seems to suggest that I never laid out a clean deductive argument to show how the inference runs, but of course I did. I would just refer him back to my opening statement where I did exactly that. As for my timeless creator argument against Christian theism, Jared misunderstands my argument. Uh, I'm not claiming that an object that is timeless or frozen and changeless uh, in one mode of its existence could not become an object that experiences temporal succession or change at another mode of its existence. That was never my claim. My claim was that it could never be an intentional action. And that's the important thing here. It couldn't be an intentional action because that itself presupposes time. It presupposes temporal succession. All that said, I do want to thank Jared for the time and effort he put into this debate. Thank you. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 